This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, like I said, we're kicking off our new series looking at the kind of back half of John. We're going to be looking at John 13, 1 to 30 today. So if you have a Bible, if you have a device, open it up, open up to that passage. And Anchor Church, we believe that the Word of God is, is living and active, that it, it shapes us, that it's not just this kind of ancient book that we kind of go to for advice, but we believe it's the literal authoritative Word of God. Um, so when we read the Bible at Anchor, we believe that this is the Word of God. So as we, as we sit under the, the Scripture today, as we think about it, it's not just this kind of filler between the sermon and kind of the, annou- the community news before. This is the Word of God. So John 13... 1 to 30, and I'll be reading from the NIV today. It says this, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, the Israelite, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had to pull all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel and that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I am doing. But later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now would I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You, have also washed one, uh, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example for you that you should do as I do for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is his messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you have these things, you've been blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen, but this is fulfilled in this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now, because, uh, before it happens, that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after that, he said this, Jesus was very troubled in his spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter mentioned to his disciples and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it "Is the one to whom I will give this plate a uh, piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish?" 
Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what he was needed for the festival or to go to do something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Thank you, James. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Good. Good to see you all here today. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor. If I've not met you before, as James has already mentioned, I would love to meet you after the service. A couple of quick things before we get into the word today. The first is uh, a quick budget update for June. Last month, our, um, our budget giving for June, we were about eight or $9,000 behind our giving and down from the previous month. So May was an excellent month. Uh, we were down on our giving, and around 50% of our church family gave in June, which means there was another 50% of our church family who hasn't given in this month. Uh, we are working at the moment, as you're aware, we have a, a change in treasurer, uh, Rob Tawera, who has served as our treasurer for a number of years. Rob and Cindy have moved on from Anchor to a, a church uh, much more local to where they live. At the moment, we have uh, Mitch Bryce, our operations director, serving in that role as an interim treasurer for a period of time. We would love um, your prayers to be able to find someone who can serve in that capacity. We recognize that as our movement continues to grow, the more churches that we add to this thing, the more that we will probably need to staff that position in the future. But for now, as a measure of transparency and accountability, we would love a volunteer to serve in that position. Um, so we are looking for a treasurer, but for now, Mitch is serving in that capacity. Uh, so if you are um, gifted and skilled, have accounting background, love a spreadsheet and just froth over Excel, uh, then please come and talk to me or hit up Mitch. But we will be getting our monthly giving reports to you as soon as we can catch up on some of our processes. There's been a little bit of disruption in that handover and transfer of, uh, of treasurer role, but we're working really hard on it. But all that to say is um, we've had a significant turnover. We've had a, a big vision of planting churches, and part of what we need to do here at Anchor City is continue to own the budget that we have uh, and so we're about eight or $9,000 behind where we need to be in June. So let's pick that up for July. And I would love to be here in a position to report otherwise next month. The second thing I wanted to talk about was last Sunday, we launched our Northern Beaches Church Plan up at DYRSL. And it was, yes, that is definitely worth a cheer and a celebration. It was an incredible Sunday. Um, James and the team, James and Callan and the team did a phenomenal job uh, and we were able to be there with a few other people from Anchor City to witness that. And it was such a wonderful service. James preached a message of grace and really set a tone for the type of church that they want to be up on the northern beaches. That is a church that is saturated by grace. And I just wanted to share a couple of quick stories with you uh, that have come out of the northern beaches launch. And the first is that um, the, the church meets at DYRSL. And so you walk into the RSL. And there, it's an incredible facility, parking on site. But you walk in, there is restaurants, and, uh, and sadly, like most RSLs, there's a pokies room. And one of the patrons had turned up 
at like quarter to 10 on a Sunday morning for a bit of a quick slap. And he saw a sign that said church. And so he felt really compelled to come upstairs to see what was happening at church and sat under this beautiful message of grace. And so we're hoping that he right now is sitting in church again this Sunday. The other story is, as you're aware, a big part of what we do here at Anchor is our gospel communities are places where we want to demonstrate and declare the good news of Jesus and show people what it means to be loved by God. So our gospel community is open places, community around a table, messy fellowship, a community of grace. And one of the gospel communities that meets up in Eleanor Heights has been able to invite some friends of theirs who don't yet follow Jesus to be a part of their gospel community, experience a community of life and love and grace and mission together. And so as James has already mentioned, we're going to be praying for Northern Beaches next Monday night. But would you continue to pray for them in this vital, crucial season as they figure out how to be the gathered people of God again? You remember these guys, some of them have not met corporately for over two and a half years. Um, So they would appreciate your prayers. Well, as James has mentioned, we are in a new series today, and I'm very excited to be launching this series. It's called Upper Room, and we're going to be, over the next 12 weeks, walking our way verse by verse through John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. So my encouragement to you is to read that section of John's gospel in one sitting from beginning to end. It'll probably take you about 30 minutes, or if you're a slow reader like me, maybe 44 minutes or however long it's going to take you. But I want to encourage you to read it a few times in one sitting and soak yourself in this passage of Scripture. It is a beautiful passage of Scripture. The events that occur here in John's Gospel are unique to John. We get snippets of the other Gospels recording what happens here, but John records with great detail and deep intimacy the events that are happening here in John's Gospel. As we turn the page from John chapter 12 to John chapter 13, some really significant things happen. We move from the hustle and bustle of the streets to the quietness of an upper room. We move from Jesus engaging with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the, um, all of the religious aristocracy to him withdrawing to just the twelve. There is a significant scene shift that occurs here from John 12 to John chapter 13. There's a few things that we notice here that are really, really important for us to get. In John chapter 13, verse 1, there are two time markers that John gives us here. The first is, he says that these events that occur here in the upper room from John 13 to 17 are happening around the time of the Passover. Now, if the Passover, if we understand our Jewish calendar as well, we know that this event is a celebration of what God did in Exodus as he brought his people out of slavery and The people of God smeared the blood over the doorposts and Israel was to remember this moment every single year. And this is likely the Wednesday or Thursday night, most likely the Thursday night before the Passover, which would happen on the Friday night, which in John's gospel was the first Good Friday. And those events culminated in a powerful testimony that the fact of this is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God. And in his death, he is taking the penalty. His blood is shed. And so these moments are occurring at a very important, poignant time. Its time is the timing of the Passover. The second thing you'll notice there 
is that Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come for Jesus to return back to his father. Now, there are multiple times in John's gospel where he says, the hour hasn't come. All the way back in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast in Cana, where his mom comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. And he says, woman, why do you bother me? Woman, I mean, who would ever speak to their mom? Woman, why do you bother me? My hour has not yet come. And he says this over and over again, the time has not arrived, the time has not arrived. And then in John chapter 12, as some Gentiles come to him, it says the hour has come. We turn the page to John chapter 13, and here John records for us that the hour had come. The time has arrived for Jesus to do what the Father had sent him on earth to do. And what we see happening here in John chapter 13 to 17 is an introduction to really the entire passion narrative, the entire story of the cross as Jesus spends time with his disciples here for four chapters and then walks out of this room to the Garden of Gethsemane where he is betrayed at the hands of Judas and then denied by Peter and ultimately falsely sentenced by the Sanhedrin and crucified. This here, these verses in chapter 13 serve as an introduction to the entire story of the cross. And the purpose here that Jesus spends this time together with his select 12, the purpose here is to prepare his disciples for his departure. He is about to leave and return to the Father's right-hand side. And he is preparing his disciples for their history-shaping, world-changing mission that he is about to send them on. He wants to help them understand what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus without his physical presence on earth. For the last three years, they have learnt in the school of Jesus Christ, side by side, watching, observing, touching, listening. And Jesus is about to go. And he is preparing his disciples for that departure. A world that will be hostile, a world... They are about to experience a disruption to their last three years like they have never experienced before. They're about to experience discouragement and disillusionment. They're about to experience persecution and suffering and scattering. And Jesus wants to prepare them for that moment, to follow Jesus. And I believe that this is a deeply relevant part of God's word for us in the season of life that we find ourselves in. And so some have called this section of John's gospel the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. Others have called this words to friends. I love that, words to friends. This is Jesus pulling together his 12 homies, his 12 disciples, his closest friends, And giving them the last instructions, his last words, before he will depart. These are words to friends. In fact, some have even called this a missional discourse. Because the the fruit of this is to prepare the disciples to participate in the mission of God that will go on to the ends of the earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so as we dive into John chapter 13... This morning, I am full of expectation about what God wants to do in us as he prepares us for the same mission. So why don't we pray together and we're going to rip straight into John 13. Sound good? Great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. 
We thank you for scripture. We thank you for your word. And this morning, we want to submit ourselves humbly to it, recognizing that your word offers us such a countercultural way to live in this world. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak now. Please challenge us, change us, make us people who know what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus. And I pray for a powerful reminder encounter that you love us so deeply this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said in one loud voice. Amen. Amen. You know, I think the central theme here of John chapter 13 is the theme of love. And you might think, well, that's obvious. I mean, love is kind of like the theme of every verse in the Bible. But I think it's particularly relevant and obvious here in John chapter 13. It's the theme of love, and in particular, the love that Jesus has for his disciples. And it's important here, just before Jesus tells his disciples what's about to happen, he's about to leave, return to the Father, he's about to commission them like sheep into the hands of wolves. And the first thing that he chooses to do in this moment is remind them that he loves them. And I think that's particularly important for us this morning. Jesus loves them. He loves them completely. He loves them practically. He loves them unconditionally. And he loves them intimately. And so I want us to look at this morning what it means to be people who receive the love of Jesus. So let's start in verse 1. It's a good place to start. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is what it says. Verses on the screen behind me. It was just before the Passover festival. Cue the timing. Important, important. Just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go back to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' own here are those who, like in John chapter 10, hear the voice of the good shepherd. You see, when Jesus speaks, his own sheep hear and they listen. His own are those whom he has called to himself, followers of Jesus, those who have apprenticed themselves to his ways and are learning to love and live like him. These are his chosen people, his own. And that phrase means that we belong to Jesus. He has called us out of the world. And that's a beautiful definition of what it means to be the church. Well, there are so many things that could be said about the church in this day and age. But let's just camp here on what Jesus means when he calls us his own people that he has called out of the world. He has loved his own and he has loved them to the end. Now that could mean that Jesus has loved them literally to the end of his life. right From the beginning of the time that he met them all the way back in John chapter 1 and 2 when he called the disciples to follow him all the way to his death on the cross in John 19. He has loved them from the beginning to the end. That could be one way we read that. The other way is that Jesus has loved them completely. He has loved them with every fiber of his being. He has loved them with all of his love. He has not withheld that from him. And perhaps in this context, both are true. Fully and finally, Jesus has loved his people, his disciples 
to the very end. And then he gives them this picture, this parable of his love. Have a look at what it says in verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was around him. Now, We've got to put ourselves back into the first century context to understand what is happening here. Because as these disciples come into this room, it's not like they've got out of their Toyota Corolla with their you know, Nike white, pristine white Nike Air Force Ones and walked across a very clean, flat, concrete pavement and sat down in a chair at a table. That is not what is happening, right? We think dinner party. We think you know, Da Vinci's Last Supper. They're all sitting at a table on chairs. That is not what is happening. In the first century, the disciples, in fact, most people would have worn open leather sandals with leather straps on them and walked along the roads that the Romans would have built during the Pax Romana, the the Peace of Rome. They built this intricate road system for trade and they would have walked along these roads, dirty, dusty roads. And so would all of the animals and the cattle and the horses that were pulling carts And their feces would have been spread across the road. And so as people would have walked anywhere, they would have literally walked across disgustingly filthy Roman roads. And so whenever you turned up to someone's house as an act of hospitality, you would turn up and they would provide the service of foot washing. Your feet would be clean so that you could move into the dining room and recline on the floor at the dining table with your feet right there, like right there, like that. You know, your feet, you could literally touch the person's feet next to you, right? So you get why foot washing is really important in the first century. Now, the problem is the host of the dinner party, the person whose house you turned up to, would never wash your feet, ever. That task was too menial. It was too below a host. That task was reserved for a slave, a servant in the household. In fact, the Jews believed that that task was even too low for a Jewish slave to perform. That task was reserved for Gentile dogs, as they called them. The lowest of the low, the most insignificant person in the household, they would perform the foot washing. And so here... In this context of this dinner party that Jesus is hosting with his disciples, they've come in, they've sat down at the table, and then Jesus gets up and he does something profound. He takes his outer layer of garment on and he wraps a towel around his waist. Now you think, yeah, cool. I mean, I do that when I get out of the shower, wrap a towel around my waist. But, but this, what Jesus is doing here is he is adopting the clothing and posture of a slave. What's happening here is not subtle at all. And Jesus proceeds to wash his disciples' feet. Now, we think about this in, you know, 
our context here in Australia, and I think sometimes we can sense the significance of what Jesus does here, but perhaps we need to immerse ourselves into it a little bit more. And so I'm going to ask a volunteer to join me on stage. Sam, would you come up here? I want you to see what this is like. Sam was on bumping this morning, so he was here early, and um, he's got boots on, which, you know, I don't know how breathable those boots are. I know they are Sam's favorite boots, but, um, I mean, Sam did a bit of hard work today, lots of heavy lifting. I'm assuming his feet are sweaty. And um, so, Sam, come and sit. You need to take the socks off as well. This is what Jesus did. He took off his outer garment and he came round and individually to every single one of his disciples with a bucket of water and a towel, he would wash their feet. It's warm. It's warm. I made sure it's warm. Let me make sure it's not too warm. It's a toasty bath. That's it. Feels nice. chose Sam's feet. Your feet are actually um, quite clean, Sam. I'm, I'm impressed. It's not much, there's not ticklish. much lint in there. You're ticklish. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of like intimate and awkward, isn't it? This is not what I expected to happen this morning. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Can we give Sam a round of applause? Now, I think we can laugh at that and giggle at it and make jokes on the side. Do you know why we make jokes in that moment? Because it's awkward. Honestly, like it's awkward. Sam's like, you know, I wasn't expecting this. And we typically don't touch other people's feet. Why don't we do that? Well, kind of, you know, feet can be gross at times, particularly if you've, uh, you know, been walking around in your Havianas all day and it's sweaty. You know, that kind of stench you get from your rubber thongs. Your feet can stink. But also we kind of balk at that because it's, there's something intimate about it. And there's something really humbling about someone washing your feet. Like this, this is what we do in the shower. You know, I wash my feet. I take care of my own feet unless you get a pedicure. Is it a pedicure where they do the manicures, the fingers, pedicures, the feet, right? I don't know how you do that, ladies. I don't know how you get a pedicure, right? But it's intimate. But here's the thing I want you to notice about this event here, is that the disciples of all sat down at the table already. Like the dinner party has already started. Did you notice that bit about it? The dinner party's already happened. They're already reclining at the table. And my question is, why is that? Why have the disciples sat down with dirty feet? Because they are willing to endure the uncomfortableness of the stench of their own feet more than they are willing to lower themselves to the status of a slave and wash each other's feet. They all see what's happening here. They all see it. They're all experiencing it. And yet not a single one of the 12 disciples is willing to lower themselves to wash each other's feet other than Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who does what no one else was willing to do. And he takes off his outer garment and wraps himself in a towel and he proceeds to wash the disciples' feet, all 12 of them. This is a scandalous upheaval of the social order of the first century. This would have been shocking, like more, more than just awkward me and Sam. This is a shocking display of humility and service and submission of Jesus to his disciples. It's uncomfortable. And I want to suggest to you a life-altering lesson for those disciples. This moment would have had a profound impact on every single one of them. I was trying to search for a modern equivalent of what this would be like, and it's actually really hard to find one, but perhaps the closest we could get is uh, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, comes to your house, and he comes to your house to use your bathroom and realizes that your toilet is not clean, and in fact, it hasn't been cleaned for two weeks, and so he proceeds to clean your toilet, and you've got no gloves, and there's no hand sanitizer afterwards. Like, maybe that is the closest cultural equivalent that we could think of. This is dirty, demeaning, insignificant work that Jesus does. And we can tell how shocking this is by Peter's response. Have a look at how Peter responds to this event. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Look, what were you thinking was going to happen, Peter? I mean, he's just, however many people went before him, Peter's next in line. What's he thinking is going to happen? Jesus says to him, Peter, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You really got to be careful when you say never to Jesus, right? And you would have thought... Peter would have learned from the whole get behind me Satan incident. That was, you know, like, you know, Jesus says, the son of man is going to suffer and die at the hands of sinful people. And Peter says, never, Lord. And Jesus' response to him is, get behind me Satan. Right? You, you would have thought Peter would have learned from his mistakes. But classic Peter, always speaking before he's thinking, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Just go for it, Jesus. Like, wash all of me. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not every one was clean. One of the things that John does in his Gospels as he writes is he he inserts these phrases that often have double meanings. It's called a double entendre. And he will say something and often has a really practical, physical, tangible meaning. But underneath it, there is also this spiritual meaning attached to it. And that's exactly what's happening here in this encounter with Peter. There is the obvious practical lesson of humility and humble service that Jesus does in this foot washing scene, but there is also this spiritual meaning. And I think it's really important that John places this here at the beginning of 
John chapter 13, because it kind of it acts as an introduction to the entire passion narrative, the entire story of Jesus' journey to the cross. Jesus is demonstrating here, almost in picture form, like a parable, what he will ultimately do in John chapter 19 as he goes to the cross, dies for the sins of the world, sheds his blood for our cleansing and forgiveness and redemption. Jesus is saying, I want you to know what this is about. This is not just some false you know, accusation, a mistake that the Roman soldiers made. This is not some corruption that the Jewish leaders have partaken in. This is an act of divine love. And this is a parable of what will happen. A loving Humble, scandalous act of service. Now, the foot washing here is this precursor of what Jesus says when he says, I have loved them to the end. Saying this is what it looks like fully, finally, completely. My love will look like this. And so that's the point of this exchange between Jesus and Peter to demonstrate that there is a deeper meaning to this foot cleansing that is happening here in John chapter 13. But there's also a really practical meaning, is there not? The obvious one. And I want to say this is probably one of the best lessons that the disciples have learned. Aren't all of the best lessons experienced? They're caught, not taught. That's, that's often how we learn. Like You can learn something in university about what it means to be a teacher and then you turn up and try and teach year two and you're like, oh, I had no, you know, you can learn at Bible college how to interpret the Bible. Then you turn up in the pulpit and you're like, oh, this is what it means to be a preacher and a pastor. You can learn theoretically what it means to be an engineer that's going to build a bridge and then you turn up to the job site and you're like, actually, there's a lot resting on this. Cars have got to drive over this thing. My guess is that the disciples had a profound experience in this moment and learned what it meant to be loved by Jesus in a way that perhaps they never would have experienced if Jesus hadn't performed this menial act. And the point of this is also that Jesus intended his disciples to do likewise. Did you see that at the end there? This is not just a one-off act that Jesus does in service of his disciples. He's like, no, no, now you guys go and do this. Have a look at what it says in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? Kind of, not really, maybe. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Imitate me. Imitate my way. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be what? Blessed if you do them. The foot washing has never become, at least in most churches in history, has never become a sacrament like the Lord's Supper or baptism. 
And that's probably partly because we just don't see it happening elsewhere in Scripture. We don't see it happening elsewhere in church history, apart from a few churches that might practice this. But, but I think the attitude behind it, that is what we are to continue to do day after day, year after year. The attitude of humble service of other people, the attitude of a willingness to take the low place, the low position. You know, many people have taken these verses and they've applied them to this principle called servant leadership. Now, servant leadership is actually really popular in the secular leadership literature space. Uh, But it has come literally from Christian people, from Christian leaders like Ken Blanchard, who wrote the book and have imported that into the secular marketplace. And they use this passage as an example of servant leadership. And it's right. It's accurate. It's true, right? But so often we can be so captive to this one interpretation of this passage that we forget. Yes, Jesus might be talking to the leaders, But he is speaking to them as disciples and followers. And his expectation is that this isn't just reserved for the 12, that this is what it means for all followers of Jesus to embody the posture and attitude of a humble servant who is willing to take the low place. This is not just for leaders. This is for everyone. This is for all of us who want to apprentice ourselves to the ways of Jesus. Now, look, is it true in this moment that we need leaders who would care less about how many followers they have, about how big their church is and what their reputation is like, about how many people turn up to their book signing and and how much money that they are earning? Yes, it is true, absolutely. But I want to suggest to you that sometimes we can push this application aside for the select few people who need to hear it and not apply this to our own hearts and lives. We need to hear this. This isn't just preparation for leadership. This is preparation for discipleship. This is preparation for what it means to follow Jesus. And this here is the tone of the everyday disciple of Jesus, that we would be willing to humble ourselves And take the position of the low place and serve people. A life, not just a day, not just a few hours on Sunday, but a life of humble service. I want to suggest this means that there there should be nothing that is beneath us as God's people. And if you look through church history, we have a stellar record as the church, the people of God, of the ways that the church has chosen to side with the poor, the vulnerable, the weak. The church are the ones who went and scooped up the orphans that had been left to die on the rubbish heap. The church is the ones who started the first hospitals. The church is the one that started schools to educate children. And I also want to suggest to you that the church is at the forefront of dealing with the modern slavery movement, although not exclusively. The church is at the forefront of the response, again, not exclusively to the asylum seeker problem that we are experiencing in our world today. We need to be the people who would do what Jesus has called us to do and take the low place of humble service. You remember a story that I heard recently of... Two pastors from my, my previous church at, um, at MBM at Rudy Hill. And one night during their evening service, someone had notified uh, one of the pastors, Dan, that um, in the male toilets there had been 
an explosion of volcanic proportions. And um, it had just been left there. And so Dan and one of the other pastors, Mark, went in. And, you know, they could have very easily said to the service coordinators of that evening service, hey, um, guys, um, there's, there's been an accident in the toilets. We as pastors need to be in the gathering. We need to, be in the, we need to pray for people. We need to be there. You guys need to deal with this. They could easily have got, you know, the ministry trainees and said, hey, guys, uh, really practical lesson for you today of what it means to be a servant. You need to clean these toilets, right? They, they could have done that. But I tell you what they did. They took their outer garments off and rolled their sleeves up and cleaned that toilet. I'm, I'm told it took them almost an hour, the entire service. So that when the people came out of that service, they could use freshly cleaned toilets. That, friends, is a picture of what it means to serve. So Jesus loves his disciples. He loves his people completely, fully and finally. He loves his people practically and tangibly. He also loves his people unconditionally. And I just very briefly want to draw this out for you. You remember in the foot washing here, Jesus washes two disciples' feet knowing what they are about to do. The first is Peter. Jesus knows. I mean, he will literally say in a few verses time, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And yet Peter washes, Jesus washes Peter's feet. But more than that, Judas is in that circle. Judas who would betray Jesus for a few pieces of silver. You know, in that moment when, we'll read it in a second, where Jesus kind of on the, on the down low tells John who is going to betray him, he dips bread into the wine and he gives it to Judas to eat. That in the first century, is a symbol of intimate friendship. Jesus serves Judas. He gets down and he washes Judas' feet. Here, here are two followers of Jesus who will betray a friendship and a master and a rabbi, probably in a way that for most of us, would sever friendships for life. In fact, for Judas, it does. And Jesus is the one who would get down and wash their feet. I want you to see this church. His love for us is unconditional. It's unconditional. He doesn't wash the feet of the disciples who are going to do good to him on the other side of this. He washes all of their feet. His, his love for us is unconditional. And lastly, I want to say this. His love for us is intimate. This is one last little thing I want to draw out of this exchange here in John chapter 13 that I think we often miss when we read it. And we miss it partly because our English Bibles can, can obscure the, the original meaning of this. But also I think we miss this because we are so afraid of minimizing the divinity of Jesus that we don't know what to do with his humanity at times. And here is a very tangible, real experience of Jesus' humanity. And I want you to see this. Have a look at verse 22. His disciples, so he's just said to them, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. There's no hints. There's no clues. They have no idea who is about to do this. One of them... The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, referring to himself in the third person, was reclined next to Jesus, next to him. Now, 
When you look at the original language, literally this says, when he was lying against Jesus' bosom. When he was reclining against Jesus' chest. He is literally leaning up against Jesus. Cuddling. Now, you know, for us Westerners who don't get what physical touch is, we struggle with this. I remember uh, a number of years ago visiting my family back in, in South Africa. We went to a market in Cape Town and I got chatting with one of the store owners and he came up, gave me this like really elaborate African handshake. It was like, well, not, you know. And then he spoke to me for five minutes and we held hands the whole time. Like for the first 30 seconds, I'm like, is he going to let you? This is really awkward. I'm not, I'm just not used to this, you know. Because men don't talk and hold hands like that in our culture. But in an African culture, in a Middle Eastern culture, men would often just walk down the road holding hands. You would never do that with a woman. It was a sign of promiscuity. But I want you to see here the deep humanity of Jesus, that he is reclining at the table and his beloved disciple John is resting against his chest. Simon Peter, verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, it's like giving him the nod, ask him, which one? Which one is it? Ask him. Verse 25, leaning back against Jesus. So likely he's, he's leaning back and he looks up. He leans back and he looks up at Jesus' face, leaning back against Jesus. He asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread. And he dipped it in the dish and he gave it to Judas. Now, th this is such a profound encounter here for John. And Brendan Manning, the ex-alcoholic, you know, defrocked priest says this about these verses. He says, we mustn't rush past this in search for some deeper meaning. This wasn't just a historical memory for John. He's not just recording events. He doesn't put things in the scriptures just for the sake of filling up his word count. This is a profound experience that John himself encounters of the real, human, safe, loving Jesus. And it seems clear that chapter 13 has had a profound impact, not just on all of the disciples, but on John himself. It has a lasting impact because John is often called the disciple of the apostle of love. If you read any of John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, or read John's gospel, you will know that the theme of love is so prevalent for him. And that is not because it's his favorite topic. It's because that's what his experience of Jesus was. His message that he shares is the message that he embodied, experienced, felt, and lived in his apprenticeship to Jesus. It is birthed from experience. So much so that when John refers to himself, when, John, when someone says, John, who are you? His personal preference of his defining reality is, I am the one that Jesus loved. Now, that could be a sign of anonymity, humility. Maybe that's true, but I also want to suggest to you that the fact that John makes his primary identity the truest thing about him, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. I wonder if you can say that today. I wonder if you can say that of yourself. I am 
disciple that Jesus loves. I, Matt, am the disciple that Jesus loves. Maybe we can say it, but I wonder if we believe it. Like really deep down, believe that truth. Not just in your head, but in your heart. You know, we can read a verse like John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he loves everyone, that he gave his one and only son the, the most sacrificial act of love there possibly is. We can read that and think, yes, of course. God loves everyone. He loves the world. But deep down, we think, I'm pretty sure he's just tolerating me. I'm pretty sure he's putting up with me and my failures and my mistakes and my denial and my betrayal and my mess and my insecurities. Sure, he loves everyone else, but I'm not really sure if he loves me. I am the one that Jesus loves. You know, Irenaeus, the early church father, says this, we must be affected by Jesus like John was. He's not saying you need to have a physical encounter of lying against his chest and listening to the heartbeat of the Savior, as cool as that would have been. John is the only one who gets that experience. What he is saying is we need to appropriate that by faith to our experience that we would enter into the feet of John. We must be affected by Jesus like John was until I metaphorically lay my head on his breast. I have but a derivative spirituality. This needs to be true of us. That you and I can say, I am the disciple that Jesus loves. I am the one that he loves. And not just say, but to understand, to let that seep into our soul and our bones and our experience. And I recognize that for some of you, this is profoundly difficult. Some of you who carry a quota of shame that feels too heavy. Some of you that are walking through a season of dissonance between what you know in your head and what your heart is feeling. This is profoundly difficult. I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm just suggesting it's important for us. We live in a season of an uncertain future. You know, there's a new variant of Omicron every second week and who knows what it's going to look like. There is a global recession. There's stuff happening in China. There's stuff happening in America. There's stuff happening in the Solomon Islands. There's stuff happening everywhere in our world at the moment. We have no idea what the future holds. There's a recession potentially on the horizon. What do we need As we look at the recent census data and see again the declining statistics of religious affiliation, what do we need in this season of disassociation and disorientation and discouragement? What do we need? Well, I want to suggest to you we don't need more certainty about tomorrow. We don't need lower interest rates. We don't need a treatment for... COVID, although all of those things we would be quite, we would receive them with gratitude and thankfulness. Yes. But more than all of that, what we need is Jesus. What you need is Jesus. 
the only thing, church, I have to offer you in this crazy season is to offer you Jesus. We can turn the dial up on socials. We can make you feel guilty for not turning up. We can cry about all of the needs we have on all of our teams to try and get people back in the room. But what we can offer you is simply Jesus, the one who loves you. Yes, you, the person who is sitting in your seat, not someone else in this room. You. Jesus loves you. He loves me. What a beautiful truth for us to realize this morning. For those of you who grew up in Sunday school, that song that we sang all the time, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what we need. The gift I want to leave you with this morning is to take out of these doors the acute reminder that Jesus loves you. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. And this meal that we celebrate together is a reminder of what Jesus has done for us, that he would take the low path, that he would kneel down and wash our feet, that he would go to the cross and have his arms stretched out, his side pierced, his blood shed and his life given for our forgiveness, our freedom as the ultimate commitment, demonstration, declaration of his love for us. This meal that we celebrate is a feast of love. And so I invite those of you this morning who love Jesus, who follow him, who worship him, to take a moment during our response time together to head to the back. There are stations up the back and on those stations are grape juice and some bread. They represent symbolically the body and the blood of Jesus. We invite you to eat that bread, remembering that Jesus' body was broken and to drink that grape juice as a symbol of his blood that was poured out for your forgiveness. If you need to, get on your knees and pray that this morning Jesus would show you perhaps afresh or maybe even for the first time that he loves you. So we invite you to stand. We're going to pray we're going to respond. We're going to worship. And we're going to celebrate the fact that we are loved people. Let's pray together, church. We thank you, God, that you love us, that you have loved us not just a little bit, but you have lavished your love upon us, Lord. That you have given your best. God, we choose to believe by faith this morning, that all of us are loved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.